0: I like the agencies that own a niche and have that kind of market of one. As opposed to being a general agency, instead of going big, I like going small, but where you can own that.
1: Hey, podcast listener. Even if you are alone in your entrepreneurial journey, know that today, right now in your earbuds, you are joined by thousands of entrepreneurs from all around the globe seeking to grow better, more profitable, location-independent businesses. If you'd like to learn more about what we do and download our entire back catalog, check out TropicalMBA.com. Hey, yo, welcome back to the TMBA podcast. Boss man. Hey, man. How are you doing?
2: Wonderful. 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 You're moving out of my house pretty soon here. I know. I'm going to find my new normal. (laughs) (laughs) It's been great having you in the backyard, and you will be missed.
1: Yeah, and we're going to have to tell the inside story of what went down here at the ranchette. Maybe at the end of the episode, we'll come back and tell some ranchette stories. Ian, today is an episode about some of the upsides of these strange times that we're living in, We've been on the web, on the Twitters, and the DC, reading blog posts inspired and driven, you know, by the current situation. And you know, when you look at how the world's responding to how so many listeners of this pod are responding, it's inspiring because we are facing challenges. And and I guess that's sort of the theme for me of being here at the Ranchette and being on this podcast here with you guys. Is like, yeah, this is a tough time for everybody, and it's scary. But
2: our job as entrepreneurs is really to do something about it to solve problems and to keep moving forward. I'm reminded of that famous line in Dumb and Dumber. It <laughs> says, uh, we got no food, we got no money, our pet's heads are falling off. I mean, that's what it feels like <laughs> over here. <laughs> Long time listeners of the show, you don't know how
1: much it pleases me uh, when my RSS feed from Feedly dings up with an amazing blog post. And today's guest did exactly that for me. It was entitled in part, The Hardest Day of My Career, Losing 400K, that's $400,000 in revenue, and testing positive for COVID. So I just absolutely had to hear the story, and it was written by this guy.
0: I'm Jim Huffman. I am the CEO of Growth Hit. We're a growth marketing agency that specializes in conversion rate optimization. So we're a team of seven people. And pre-COVID, we were approaching seven figures in revenue. Um, And then post-COVID, that essentially got cut in half. Of course, Ian,
1: one of the great things about the podcast and the internet and the telephone is that you don't have to stay behind that wall of text. I picked up the phone and dove deeper into this story. So in this episode, we cover how Jim did it. Indeed, lose nearly half of his agency's income overnight, and what he did to uh, address this uh, challenge he faced. But before we get into that, I asked Jim to go into a bit about his background and how he came up to set up Growth Hit nearly three and a half years ago. Ian, I really think this conversation will prove insightful to those of us thinking about starting an agency or running one or starting one as a way to start some services on the side because In this conversation, Ian, Jim really goes into the nitty gritty of what has and hasn't worked for him and the clients he seeks and all that. So if you're in the services game or curious about it or have ideas about it, I think you'll find this interview really fascinating. Again, we'll be back at the end of the episode to share some thoughts. So hope you all enjoy it.
0: Originally, I was a finance major that started off in investment banking only because I thought that was the only option you had as a finance major was to do investment banking. And what that meant was I was, you know, watching these people come in to do an M&A deal, mergers or acquisition, and sell their company. And I was the guy on the sidelines helping value those transactions. What was fascinating was seeing these people build up these businesses and sell them. And I was like, I don't want to be on this side. I want to be on that side. And so from there, I I quit investment banking and I started to go working for startups.
1: What sort of things did you see in those meetings?
0: What was the most impressive? I'm in a, in a room and there's these MBAs, there's these lawyers, all these people that on paper are supposed to be extremely impressive. But the person I was always kind of gravitating towards was the entrepreneur. And I was in Dallas, Texas at the time. And these entrepreneurs, half the time didn't have a college degree. Half the time they didn't, or the other half, they didn't have a high school degree. But they had built up this substantial business and they really understood their customer. They understood how to make money and they would own the room. And for me, I think early in your career, you have that question of am I learning or am I earning? And I wanted to learn. And I wanted to learn that skill set. And that's what made me want to kind of jump ship and go learn from those entrepreneurs and those types of founders.
1: I can relate to your recognition in that meeting room, but to me, it seems pretty risky stuff because you're on like a pretty decent track there. What was your career calculus at that point? Like, why take a jump into a different direction?
0: When I was in investment banking, it was around 2008. And this is leading up to 2008 investment banking, you got great bonuses. It, it was fair, it could be fairly lucrative. So I'm coming into it very excited about that. But we had a meeting where they talked about our bonuses. They were going to be very, very strong. I made some very bad decisions in getting a new apartment, getting some nice furniture. Two weeks later, the economy crashes. It's like, okay, by the way, remember those bonuses? Nobody's getting those. And by the way, we're laying off essentially everybody. In my class, they laid off every investment banking analyst other than me, but I still saw a significant drop in income. So making the jump to startups for me wasn't necessarily risky because my concept of a safe path was kind of like flipped on its head. Because after that crash, I was like, I, I don't know what is safe anymore. I should probably follow my interest and what excites me more than you know where I think I can make money. You know, you saw this upheaval back in 2008. I think so many of
1: us jumped into the entrepreneurship boat. But part of the reason we're talking to you here today is because you had this enormous hit again during this recession to your own business. So now, looking back at the two situations. Did it effectively mitigate that risk that you were seeking to mitigate?
0: I think if you set up your business the right way, you can 100% mitigate that risk. First is, is it the lifestyle I want? Like, As hard as entrepreneurship can be, the pros of it significantly outweigh the cons, like me being able to play basketball on my lunch break or like on Fridays, being able to pick up my daughter whenever I want. And if you do it the right way, you can make significantly more money and build up those cash reserves to prepare for a day like this and hopefully be more in the driver's seat of when there's a downturn. I think if you're cautious and you're planning the right way, whereas we work with a lot of venture-backed companies where these founders are very aggressive and it's all about growth, where they do that by sacrificing A safety net and some cash reserves. So, as far as mitigating risk, I think in 2008, that made me somewhat paranoid and to kind of be prepared for that doomsday, which I don't know if that's a good thing or not, but it has somewhat prepared me for this. So, a lot of people, Jim, then they're in a position like you where there's
1: kind of this crack up of a worldview like, hey, I thought this was going to go the right way. And now, entrepreneurship seems to have more promise, but it's still very confusing how to go down the entrepreneurship path. So can you talk about
0: how you made that less confusing and how you started taking action? I knew as I was getting into startups working for other people, I knew eventually I wanted to do my own thing. I just had no idea what that was going to be. And I didn't necessarily know my skill sets, but I decided just let me find the smartest people possible and just go all in and try and learn from them. What's funny is the end result isn't necessarily what I was going for, was to build an agency or a consultancy. That definitely was not the goal, it was kind of the byproduct of what was coming out of this. Because as I was working for a media startup, as I was working for a technology startup, I started getting these skills as like the non-technical person that does marketing. I was living in New York at the time. I was teaching at General Assembly. I got connected to some startup accelerators. What's General Assembly? General Assembly is continuing education for professionals. So I was teaching a lot of those digital marketing classes. And so by doing that, working with startups on the side, advising on marketing, people started coming towards me being like, hey, would you help us with our growth plan? Do you do any consulting? and that led to me in the mornings and at nights and on the weekends doing this kind of side hustle as far as helping people, you know, build their growth plan or figure out how to get their startup up and running and get some traction. And from that, I was like, wow, there's a pretty big opportunity here. I'm not even trying and people are coming to me wanting to to work with me. I was like, maybe I should try and vet this if this is a business opportunity that, that I would want to go after. You're calling me from Seattle
1: today, is that correct?
0: Yeah, Seattle.
1: And you just told a story of being in New York. How important was your location to giving your journey clarity?
0: For me, it was quite significant because especially like being early in your career, I do think it is about learning as much as possible. So location has a massive impact on that, on who you're surrounding yourself with, not just what they know, but like, you know how ambitious they are, and the thing that was really inspiring about New York is that it's people from all different like walks of life doing very different types of things, but are super motivated and hungry to make something happen. And for me, that was extremely contagious. Just to be surrounded by that, like even moving outside of it, it it's hard sometimes to replicate that energy and that hunger that's there. Like with New York, there's so many parts of it that are tough and frustrating. But that part, as far as like the people and the community around it, for me was was quite significant.
1: So you started getting people inquiring about your expertise and asking you to implement it. What was a a moment when you felt like I got a little bit of a light bulb moment here that maybe this could be something more than a side hustle?
0: So when after I taught a class, they had me make a marketing plan, and they're like, "How much do you charge for the marketing plan?" And I I was so dumb, I just like, oh, you know, two hundred fifty dollars. Which if if you make marketing plans, it's not a good price. And so I spent <laughs> so much time on that marketing plan. I'm sure I made below minimum wage on it. But after I presented it to them, like this is fantastic. Will you execute it? What's your price for that? And I was like, oh wow, I didn't expect that as a follow up. And so. As that started to happen, it just made me think. I've had so many people come up to me after these classes asking me for these little one off things. What if I actually got very intentional about what I actually offered and put it out there? Just swooping in here to say that due to a technical malfunction,
1: Jim had to switch mics here. So you might notice a slight difference in the quality of the sound.
0: And so. I was able to get two people to commit to two, for me, significant engagements for basically six months each. And the combined income from both of those would offset the salary I was making at the startup and actually be a little bit more. And so for me, that was my jumping off point, where hey, if I'm ever gonna do this and really try it, now is the time, because I'm able to mitigate the risk with getting them to commit to that initial time. And hey, if it didn't work out, I I can maybe go back to the startup or or figure out something.
1: Now, Jim, a lot of people will bang their head for years trying to figure out a way to make income on their own terms rather than from a job. But for you, it seems like it's something that kind of popped up relatively simply, at least in that telling. What was it about your approach that resonated with your customers and allowed you to make decent income off of it right away?
0: I think I was very lucky in that the way I was introduced to people was already as a thought leader, just because all of those initial clients that came in were because they were at a class I was teaching at General Assembly, or I was introduced to them through a venture capitalist or through someone that's at a startup accelerator. So as far as earning trust and credibility that happened out of the gate, and by the way, this was not intentional at all. I just got very lucky, and that that was how it was happening. And the other thing, I'm actually more surprised when entrepreneurs take a huge leap without any validation, whether that's committed customers, pre-sales, or a wait list, or people committing money, because it always takes a little bit longer than you think. It's always harder than you think, because I think Richard Branson, even with you know with Virgin. Airlines, he was able to mitigate his risk when he started that by essentially like leasing the planes. And only if he was able to actually get them up and running would he have to pay. So for me, I'm actually fairly conservative whenever I'm like trying to take a risk. And so I was trying to be very thoughtful with this.
1: You wrote a book called The Growth Marketers Playbook. If people are seeking to, I don't know, like become a thought leader themselves and maybe recreate that position you had in that room so that you could pick up clients relatively easily. What's maybe one fast route? Not fast, but relatively fast way people could create such a sense of trust and thought leadership in their
0: practices? Most people won't do it because it can sound like a really bad idea to start. But it's just add value for free and ask for nothing in return. With some of these accelerators I was working with, I would just do a cold outreach and be like, I'd love to help your startups for free. Let me know if any of them would like my services. And one of them actually responded and was like, actually, we have a portfolio company might be able to help out. And I just went all in on helping this founder out with her growth plan. So much so that she was like, this is fantastic. Whenever we hire, we'd like to bring you on. And I actually turned it down, but it was nice to just build up some credibility, build up kind of a portfolio of people I've worked with. And so if you're going out there just adding value to people and you're doing a decent job, if you don't charge anything, you're going to be able to get a lot of clients really quickly and start to build up your trust and hopefully build up your, your name.
1: And how long did it take to replace your professional salary with, so say, like to the point where you could have you know, your team running the business and you could maybe go on like a three or four week vacation?
0: Yeah, well, so out of the gate day one, I was able to replace my salary. But to your point, as far as like building up a team to do my work where I can still make that income, that hadn't happened until essentially this past December. For anybody out there that's working at a startup, a lot of times your compensation is is in this thing called equity. It's in this thing called stock options. I have a lot of stock options that I can't even go buy a cup of coffee with. I have stock options that I thought were going to be worth a lot, but now are, are worth nothing. So whenever I was starting the agency, one of my main goals was like, it, it is time to earn. It is time to make money because I've, I've been working my butt off for a long time and I'm, I'm not really seeing the benefit of that. So you can make money really fast but the sacrifice and time and just bending over backwards for clients is, is really hard. And so as I was able to build up cash reserves and hopefully get to the point I want, just in this past year, I was able to start making investments and not in junior people, but in senior people that can honestly do my job better than me. And that's why you know this, this turn to COVID was, was so rough, because I finally got this team where I was able to fire myself. And when that happened, I was like, I don't want to have to get rid of anybody because I finally feel like a business owner. I think in the the e-myth, there's this quote around, if your business depends on you, you don't have a business, you have a job. That always stuck with me where everyone talks about having a business. I talk about having an agency and I had this title of CEO, but it was a joke. It was just me like delegating some things to some junior people but I was still doing all the work. And and that switch didn't really happen until late last year.
1: So about three years.
0: Yeah. And one of the issues too was I was in denial that I had an agency. I wasn't going all in on it. I was like, you know, I'm gonna do this agency thing. I'll make some money, but really I'm going to work on this, you know, e-commerce SaaS product for Shopify. I'm going to, you know, look at these other opportunities So I I wasn't really going all in on it until really about a year ago where I was like, you know, if I'm going to do this, let's do this. I'm doing a decent job at a lot of things. I'm not doing a great job at one thing. And it was really killing me not to be focused because I think when you can focus on one thing, that's where you can have the best results and the best outcome.
1: Why were you in denial
0: about it? Uh, that's a good question. I think it's because it's like that wasn't the exciting thing for me to make an agency. I was more excited about building a product that you could scale and really grow. And I think I was kind of caught up in the idea of building this venture back startup that you can scale and then exit for millions of dollars. But the more reps I got and seeing people go after that dream, and that goal, and then just actually make really good progress, and then it not get to the result they want, the more I realize that's not necessarily the goal that I want. I don't necessarily want things. I want time and freedom. I want to be able to, you know, work at the pace that I want, the schedule that I want, and have the lifestyle I want. And that's not super expensive. And so once I started to understand the reality of that, that's when I understood that, hey, this agency could actually enable me to get to that goal. What am I doing trying to go for all these pie in the sky ideas? This is where I need to focus.
1: And so what would be the end game? What's your analog of that startup sell for millions dream?
0: I'm beyond excited about this muscle we're building at Growth Hit, which is this like really powerful growth team, and so if we're such a good growth team, we should be able to grow our own businesses and so, I still want to have a growth team, but I want all of the clients to be companies that we own like I'm beyond inspired by guys like Andrew Wilkinson from Meta Labs, who now has tiny capital, which is kind of like the the mini Berkshire Hathaway of, of the internet and so I think our goal is as we build up growth head, build up our cash reserves, take that money and invest that in, whether it's micro acquisitions or starting our own products. And we're testing both of those in two very small ways where we're launching a productized service called Funnel Teardowns, where it's essentially our CRO service pared down, where we do audits and we do A-B testing. Like we're not doing any acquisitions right now because we have no experience in it, but it's something that, down the road we would like to do because right now we have more time than money to invest in companies, but eventually we'd like to be able to make small bets to see if we find a tool that we really like that is lacking in growth where we could plug in our skill sets to hopefully take that up a notch.
1: I'd like to take a moment to talk about our very own remote jobs website, dynamitejobs.co people are starting to catch on that remote hiring isn't just a luxury or something cool that Tropical MBA folks talk about. It is a necessity. In fact, in mid-March, we saw job seeker traffic increase by 50% our inboxes have been overwhelmed by qualified candidates seeking to work for companies like yours. Now, we're working to help both sides of the aisle here. With candidates, we're sending out more recommended and targeted jobs, and we've recently launched a resume review service. For remote companies, we've recently launched a remote hiring guide and an application platform for reviewing candidates for your job listings. We've also allowed 100% of listeners of this podcast to post their first listing for free. And if you're looking to hire for an advanced technical or management role, we also have partnered with recruiters to help you get that done. Here's the reality for those of you looking to build your team or find your new normal. There's never been more candidates out there on the market looking to work for companies like ours. Check us out over at dynamitejobs.co. Each job is 100% open, remote, and paid, a.k.a. remote jobs that don't suck. Let us help you grow your remote team, dynamitejobs.co. What is the difference between your version of like a good agency and and the great one?
0: I think a good agency, you know, they, they're great at customer service. They're great at delivering results. They're great at keeping people happy and engaged. The, The great ones for me, the way I evaluate them is like, have you built a machine that can run without you? And you found a repeatable and scalable way to grow because So many agencies can be dependent on just the one person that started it. And if you can move away from that and build this process that can run without you, for me, that's what I think is amazing. And that's more on the internal facing. The external facing is I like the agencies that own a niche and have that kind of market of one, as opposed to being a general agency. Instead of going big, I like going small, but where you can own that. Whereas that might not be, from an outsider, the goal that has the biggest dollars, but I think it's the goal that can have an amazing lifestyle, amazing profits, and it can be a really nice business to have.
1: I'm almost curious to hear how you close a client. What sort of conversations might we have and how would you present your pricing to me? And, and how does like that process work where you ultimately convince someone to sign up for a contract that's worth a great deal of money to you?
0: Yeah, I think I'm actually a a horrible salesperson just because I'm maybe too honest and direct, but I try and disqualify people as fast as possible because I've learned the hard way that if we can't really add value, I don't want to take it on because we're not going to have fun conversations in three, six, nine months. So essentially what we do is we wanna qualify, make sure we can be the right fit to actually get results that'll justify our retainer. And then if we're like, okay, this is a qualified lead. If you look at some of the fastest growing companies, like what are the things they have in common? And it's this culture of testing. It's a culture of fast testing velocity and being customer centric. And this idea of data driven, everyone talks about, but nobody's truly implementing it. For example, Everyone, you can make fun of the website Amazon because it's essentially been the same forever. But that thing is a conversion machine because they run so many experiments and so many tests. It has been optimized better than any other site. It is scary how easy it is to do a transaction on there. And so for us, we've literally worked with over 100 companies where we see the difference between the ones that hit exponential growth and the ones that don't. And it's having a fast testing velocity, knowing your customer and building this culture of growth. And just by doing tests alone, you can get a lift of 10%. If you make it research-driven or data-driven, you can get a lift over 30%. And Optimizely actually ran this analysis that showed the difference between sites that are testing versus ones that are not.
1: And Optimizely is what?
0: Uh, Yeah, Optimizely is an A-B testing platform that a lot of CRO agencies use to, to increase conversions. And so... Just by doing that alone, you're setting yourself up to succeed.
1: It occurred to me when you're making this value proposition to a client and you're qualifying them based on basically how much results you can achieve for them. How do you decide how much to charge them relative to like, are you taking into account the kind of margin you need to create for the client on top of what you're going to be charging them?
0: Yeah. So for us, we do an ROI calculator. So that's why we want to understand traffic. An average order value, and existing conversion rate. Because we want to be able to show them with a very simple model, like the impact CRO can have on their business. So a 10%, a 15%, 20% lift, if that can show two, three X of what our retainer is, then it should be a no brainer for them to work with us. If they have to get buy-in from a board or for an investor, they can literally take our ROI model and show like, hey, you know, this is what these guys charge. But if we're running tests, and if we can get this left on CRO, they're going to pay for themselves. So we try and give them the actual tools and deliverables in the closing process for them to make that decision and to visually see the impact we can have on their business.
1: What happens like when you're nine months into an engagement and you've Taken out a lot of the low hanging fruit and you've created enormous results, but now you get into a situation where your results are becoming more marginal.
0: It's kind of like two things like, are you selling on strategy or are you selling on execution? Because if you're selling on execution, that's a tough game to be in because you can always kind of get cheaper. But if you can position yourself as a strategic partner that's helping them make decisions, that's the right camp to be in. And so, what that means is we're getting a lot of insights from customers on the website, how they're engaging with it. Those insights we're using on our tests, but those insights can also be used for ads, for email marketing, for customer service. So if we're able to present that information in a way that the rest of the team can use, they view us as being extremely valuable. So it's not just getting results, but getting those insights, that analysis, that can actually impact some of their business decisions and some of their marketing plans.
1: There was a a podcast guest who was on the show recently, and he had sold a productized service. And there was the implication that if you were to buy his product, which in this case, it was like content marketing packages, like here are the potential ROI you would see on this sorts of product. But he said it was ultimately very important to him to only sell the deliverable, which was the content itself. And I'm wondering, do you have a perspective on that? Like, if, Of course, during the the sales process you present, the potential ROI, but that maybe over the long haul, what you're actually delivering is like a test every week. And that test would be packaged with the lessons for the rest of the company. Do you think that's an important distinction for agency owners to consider?
0: A hundred percent. And like I love productized services and I think doing it based on deliverable makes a lot of sense. And it's good for that being kind of your lever in like moving pricing up and down based on what those deliverables are. But as far as going the strategic partner agency route, a lot of times it is based on that ROI because you have such a high cost, you really have to justify it. So hopefully you you get the ones where you know you can have that that impact. Because the other thing with being kind of this growth agency, the CRO agency, it's almost the hardest thing when you put growth in front of your title because right out of the gate, the expectations are so high that you have this big green growth button you just hit And the results follow. So managing those from the start can really make or break an entire engagement.
1: Are there any other, aside from the mechanics of your specific product, are there personality or organizational red flags that you see that help you to disqualify leads?
0: Yeah. If if people need us to be the savior to come in and, and rescue their business, that's a lot of pressure that can be a red flag. Because a lot of times the the problem goes beyond anything we can do. And it the problem lies with their core product and not having product market fit or having real traction. Another one is just out of the gate, if they're they're beating us up on price, this might not be for them. Cause sometimes, especially with Cero, we know we can be ROI positive, but it it's not going to happen with the first swing. Sometimes that needs to happen after three months into the engagement, it just really depends. And so those two things we we definitely are aware of.
1: I think this might be an appropriate time to ask you to share like a vignette, like a few weeks before the COVID crisis hit and how you were thinking about 2020. What did you think was going to happen this year for your business?
0: Oh yeah, the grass was super green. It wasn't even that we were approaching... A million dollars. We were actually on our goal was to hit two million for the end of the year, and we were actually in a position where we were about to bring on two people. And so the question was, you know, who are the right hires?
1: And for context, at this time in early two thousand twenty, you have about how many clients, and what would be like the average monthly retainer that each client's paying you, just like a ballpark figure?
0: Yeah, they're paying us around seventy five hundred bucks a month. We're at 12 clients. And so we're almost at capacity with our team. My team would probably say we're over capacity.
1: I've noticed like that kind of price point is a common resonance you know, amongst agencies to startups and, and larger businesses. Is it because it's about what you would pay a marketing person? Is that where that pricing comes from?
0: Yeah, that's exactly what we sell against because usually we're not just – we're not usually competing with other agencies. It's like should they do this with an internal person? And so we want to be competitive with that and be like, you know, you can hire an internal person. That's fantastic. It will take three months to find them. Hopefully they're good. If not, you're going to figure that out in six months and make a rehire or hire us. We'll start tomorrow. We have a team of four at your disposal to get off and running.
1: You're almost at a million dollars ARR. You're thinking you might be able to double the business in 2020. And you're in the interview process for two new people. Where were you when you realized that your plans weren't going to work out?
0: I was in Colorado for like a trip with some friends. And I started seeing a lot of things slowing down. And we had a couple startups. I would have guaranteed they were going to raise money. And they're just like, this isn't going like we want. We had some clients on Shopify with products that are not essential, that are in kind of premium fashion. And I'm just like, man, that's not going to be good for those guys as well. And so I just kind of see these things coming. And I'm like, what is the ripple effect this is going to have?
1: How did your clients cancel on you?
0: We had some call. We had some email because we we actually have pretty good relationships with all of them where we feel like we're part of the team. And the ones that paused, it was a call. They're just like, we we don't know what's going on here. And then some others, I could tell they have a lot going on. And it's just emails like, we can't do this. We got to pause, talk to you later. And so I was calling those email bombs. And so those email bombs would drop. And I was like, oh, man, The, the first one wasn't too bad. The second and third ones are the ones that that started to sting.
1: And so you have overhead costs at this point. You lose almost half of your annual commitments in terms of revenue. What sort of thought process do you go through?
0: Yeah, I was immediately like doing a game of math where it's like, okay, our recurring monthly revenue has been down to this. What is my monthly burn? And what does that mean for dipping into cash reserves? So it's immediately like playing the numbers game.
1: To set some context on this, Jim, do you have a rule of thumb for what kind of margins agencies should run at?
0: A lot of times the rule of thumb can be around 40% that you want to have, and that can kind of fluctuate.
1: 40% gross profit?
0: Yeah, that's everything. That's with my team and with my expenses. Okay. Yes. I'm factoring that in. The other thing that I'm thinking through is I'm on like some Slack channels with other agencies where, like, how much cash should you have in reserves? Do you want to have three months of runway, six months of runway, a year of runway? And it it definitely depends on your risk tolerance. I did a lot of conversations with people that are other, that are founders and have agencies to think through this. And I kind of came up with my own solution, which I don't know if it's the right one, but I was like, okay, I finally built this team with people that I'm so excited about that can help run the business so I can work on it and work, not work in it. I'm not ready to let this go. So I have made the decision, I'm going to dip into those as much as I have to to keep this team intact. And not only not to like let anybody go, I don't want touching my salary. I want to keep everybody working at that same pace because if I look at my worst possible option... I deplete all of the cash, I lose the team, I'm still going to be fine. I know I like. I do teaching on the side, I'm on the board of a company, like, I know I could like close two clients and do the work myself and I'll be fine. So what did you do? After running the numbers, I started just talking with the team where it's like, I don't have the answers, but we're going to figure this out. But we need to increase our frequency of talking to get our plan together. Because I also didn't, want there to be too much time with the team thinking, you know, what does this mean for me? What is my future like? I wanted them to feel pretty secure because I think if they're secure, they're going to be focused to, to work on the right things. And then from there, I, I think everyone was on the same page with like, okay, we've got to figure out a way to actually get some business coming in the door. So I immediately, like you think of like two ways of growth, you have like scalable ways and non-scalable ways. And so I went to the non-scalable ways cause like we need to just fill the pipeline. So I like went through that, the Rolodex of people I had that had been kind of interested in what we're doing. And for the most part, they were all on pause. But just by luck, we had a few companies that were in industries that were actually doing pretty well, like online education. And so those companies started to be interested. The other thing we realized is this is like a whole new playing field. Are we offering the right product or service in this new world? Maybe a pared down version of CRO. And that's where we've kind of got into this idea of productized services, where instead of being $7,500 per month, what if we're $5,000 or $4,000? What would that look like where we can still add value and hit our margins? The other thing is we decided that let's actually – continue to spend on paid ads google ads that work pretty well for us and actually spend more we doubled down on that it's funny because if you asked me before covid how we got leads i'd be like oh they kind of fell into our lap through referrals through me doing speaking engagements and that's a horrible thing to be proud of i think because what this exposed is we didn't have repeatable scalable way to grow we can't grow if we're not going out there and talking to people, so it really made us focus on how do we get business just by doing other tactics. So we went all in on account based marketing, which if you have a lifetime value or you know annual revenue from someone that I think the rules like it's either two thousand or you could say ten thousand, you can do an a b m strategy
1: wait an a b m
0: account based marketing
1: this is a term that I'm not aware of.
0: So with account-based marketing, you can essentially kind of flip the funnel in its head where you're like, okay, who are those people or customers or companies that should be doing transactions with us? So for us, we do extremely well with websites that do over 50,000 sessions per month. They're doing over 2 million in revenue. If they're on Shopify, that's a bonus. Their average order value is over $75. So if we can find a list of all of these companies And just go out to them in the most genuine, authentic way. We think that what we offer is so good, we'll be able to convert some of them. And so we started essentially deploying the strategy.
1: Is this like a cold email strategy?
0: The way you orchestrate it is even before you do cold email, you start doing ads to them just as a thought leader. Um, You start engaging with them on social like two weeks out. And then you do a cold email outreach strategy, but the goal is to be positioned as a thought leader and not try and sell them. And it's also doing free work, which again, is kind of an investment in your team and time. But if you can get off on the right foot, because we're used to being viewed as thought leaders rather than doing cold sales, so we wanted to try and keep that as much as possible. So it's almost like
1: a virtual way to do what was working for you in the old world where you used to meet <laughs> real people and talk to them. <laughs> yeah. Where where do you learn about this concept called account-based marketing?
0: So I do some teaching through the ANA, and it's the Association of National Advertisers. It's like an online education platform for, for big companies. I do some some teaching on there. And one of the most requested courses is around ABM. And once I heard this, I was like, okay, I need to go all in on, on reading and learning about this. Because if anyone is in the service business where you have a pretty strong lifetime value, it could be something that, that works for you. Because for our business, if you think about it, we really only need... 20 clients to hit our goals when you put the number to 20 that's super obtainable that's really exciting it's like i could write on a list who those 20 are so what could you do to add the most value to them to wow them to get them excited about working with you that's kind of the core of it from from my perspective
1: i want to read back to you your crisis because you ended up recovering a quarter million dollars in accounts is that correct uh yeah And it was all through account-based marketing or, I mean, well, let me read your process to you. Over-communicate to your team so you increase your frequency, which I think is a very, very smart thing. Learn from history. Seek advice from people smarter than you. Achieve extreme focus by saying no. Being decisive and
0: default to kindness. What are you, some kind of hippie? (laughs) Well, I haven't had a haircut in three months. So yeah, I guess you could say that.
1: (laughs) (laughs) What do you mean by kindness, though? That's a strange thing to say.
0: We had some businesses that not only could they not work with us, they couldn't pay us. And I I think you have some decisions you can make there. It's like, I can call up the lawyers and let's do this. You know, let's try and capture some money. Or it's like, you know what, this is a crazy time. I, I get it. Let's be long term partners in this. and. If it takes you nine months to pay us, it takes you nine months to pay us. If you need to get your contract done, that was kind of the the root of that. And even with my team, because it's also like, let's say I was going to lay people off. It's like, what's the right way to do that? What's the humane way to do that? So I was just kind of thinking through that. So I think if I, I have that lens first, it made me think about things that the right way. But I don't know, as I watch this MJ doc and having the killer instinct, maybe I need to change my mindset. (laughs) I, I don't know anymore if that's right.
1: Well, congratulations on the recovery. I'm sure your team feels thankful that you handled things the way you did. It must have had a positive effect on morale given how most people's jobs are going.
0: I think so. I mean, I'm also just thankful they hunker down because it's interesting how people respond if you're transparent sometimes they can be raw raw and all in other times it might make them paranoid i think it has been good for culture overall just making people feel more part of what we're trying to do here
1: i have to ask you wrote that you got the coronavirus how did you know and what did it feel like
0: Yeah, I'm one of those guys where if you get sick, you kind of ignore it. It's like, oh, I'll be fine. I'll take some ibuprofen or whatever. And I hadn't gotten the flu in a while, but it it definitely was an aggressive flu that would escalate pretty quickly where, I mean, I'd be kind of like trying to work all of a sudden. I couldn't like focus on anything and I would need a nap. Like I couldn't be awake for more than two to three hours without needing a nap. And I'm like super fortunate that I don't have any respiratory issues. I can't imagine people that got it at such a more severe level what that must be like because I think I got it at a very mild level and it just wiped me out. And actually, my wife got it. She lost her sense of taste. I had like a throbbing headache for two straight days we actually bounced back fairly quickly and then we just kind of self isolated ourselves in a a corner of Seattle for quite a while. Wow.
1: I don't want to ask you to speculate about the future, but maybe I'm still curious to hear your thoughts though. What do you think is going to happen? And you have skin in the game. You have to plan for it. What are you planning on having happen in the business space?
0: The more I read, the more I'm still uncertain and, At a high level, it's a matter of, okay, people are starting to be reintroduced back into the world. There's things that are opening. Is there going to be a second wave that pulls this back? If there is, like, are the hospitals, is everybody prepared for that? Because I think we will be a little bit more prepared than we were just because of what we've gone through, but it's still not where we want to be. So obviously, what does that mean and what is the ripple effect? Because some industries... Obviously, that's detrimental. Other industries, that's fairly good because we work a lot in the Shopify e-commerce space. Overall transactions online, I think, were around 11% pre-COVID. After COVID, they went up to 30%. So for some businesses online, they've been able to help people and it's been great for them. As I think through that, like I'm wondering, okay, if there's a second wave, what does that mean? Who's positioned to need our help? If the economy comes back, in e-commerce drops, what does that mean for these these other players? But the summary of it is I'm kind of preparing for it to take a little longer than people are even speculating just to be as conservative as possible. But I mean, who really knows?
1: You mentioned you wish you had heard of the podcast, the Tropical MBA podcast that is like earlier in your entrepreneurial career. A lot of people want to build something like you've built that are listening to this. What else do you wish you knew when you were starting out?
0: When you're coming out of even school, it's I was very limited in what are your options for career growth? Because as a finance major, I'm like, "Okay, I can either be a consultant, an investment banker, or a trader." Those are those are the three career options. And the truth is, once you get out there, there's so much more. And now with how things are advancing and how technology grows, there's even more options that are emerging every single day. So just getting exposure to what the different options are, and not only that, but like how you create your own career path. It's books like, you know, the four-hour work week, e-myth, all the content you guys put out there. I think it really changes people's mindsets on how to think about career and how to think about growth And for me, that's what really changed because even as I got into startups, you kind of see the only option is get backed by venture capital firms and scale, 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 grow, and hopefully go public. But the reality is that is so hard to do and so many more people fail. And even if you go public or you exit, you get diluted so much, you're not even hitting your goal and then you have these golden handcuffs to be with a company for X amount of time. There are these other paths that you can take that can make you potentially more wealthy and create the actual life you want that's more fulfilling. And so not to get too deep on that, but I think you have to really understand what you want at the end of the day and getting those resources that help you uncover that can help you figure out the, the path you want to go on. And I was, I was so stuck in that kind of finance route, that VC-backed startup route, where I, I wasn't aware of what all options are out there. I'm also like really impressed with like Ryan Culp, what he's doing with Fork Equity with his micro acquisitions, like buying these small tools and SaaS products and then growing them himself. So it's owning all these small businesses that can compound to be a really nice portfolio.
1: Really eloquently said, Jim. I appreciate that. Is there any uh, final shout out you want to give to the fellow entrepreneurs? Uh, 80% of the people listening to this are active entrepreneurs and business owners. Is there anything that you'd want to say to them?
0: No, I think if anything, like create more than you consume. I I think it's for me, I learn so much from people that are doing cool things that inspire me. And whether you think it's like people will judge you or think that you are bragging or you're not, I think just putting yourself out there and like talking about what you're working on is, is really fun because there's so many people that I talk to that are doing cool stuff. Where I'm like, man, I wish you would write about that or put that on a podcast because that content, I don't know. I think it can be really inspiring for other people.
1: I totally agree. And there's almost like an inverse proportion. Sometimes the cooler, the thing you're doing, the less incentivized you are to share about it.
0: A hundred percent agree. Our friend Tommy Griffith at Clickline, he did a post last year documenting his journey where I was wanting him to do that for years, but that that was a fun read. It
1: was epic you needed like <laughs> tissues and a bag of popcorn and yeah, he's a great writer. Well, Jim, it was great to get to know you just a little bit, and uh, I appreciate you sharing your perspective here on the pod today,
0: yeah, of course thank you had a had a blast. <laughs>
1: Big ups to Jim from Growth Hit for swinging by the show, sharing his story, open kimono, got coronavirus, lost all this revenue, rallied the troops, started doing daily meetings with the team. I think about this, Ian. It's like, on the one hand, you know, being an entrepreneur, you have that stress, you know, of you're responsible for all these people and clients and putting food on the table and stuff. But Would you have it any other way? You know, this idea that actually Jim had the, I know it sounds ridiculous to say, I guess, in the context of taking such a big hit to your business. But the reality is, is like, you know, one-to-one that that actually happened, that that's reality. You're responsible for it. And people like listeners of this show, like Jim, step up and respond and then ultimately reap the benefits. And those benefits can be long lasting, whether it's personal wealth or free time with the family or just not having... To drive to an office anymore
2: I think losing that kind of money is uh, that's devastating, but it, it almost might be worse, Dan, to lose your job and to not have any control of the situation at least Jim had the opportunity to write his asset to put it back on course and to figure out a new way forward and I think a lot of people are going through this right now with this pandemic, you know, trying to figure out the new way forward and again, keep saying it on this show, this is the opportunity of a lifetime, I believe, to build or buy something it's a shake up it's a time that wealth will be redistributed and what role will we have in that and it's
1: been incredible
2: like everything from the mindsets
1: that people have to how they're thinking about their lives to so just rules on everyday pricing of things and the sorts of transactions that people are willing to do and you see even through things like this podcast the different sorts of advertisers that are coming through and that they're cutting deals that they like with a style that they never cut before people are thinking for lack of a better term, outside of
2: the box right now. Well, it only happens a couple of times, I guess, in a lifetime. But essentially, when you can say, well, that was the case yesterday, but not today. Yeah. I got
1: to say also, for public consumption, a sincere thanks for you and your family for hosting me here at the Ranchette. It's been an amazing time. If people want a snapshot of how we spend our time together, it's basically exactly like this, but without the microphones (laughs) on. (laughs) And uh, uh, for your sake, we won't publish all of those conversations, (laughs) but it's been awesome, like brainstorming, talking with the team, going on bike rides, hanging out here on the Ranch. It's been a really creative, productive time. And I hope that y'all see that like rolling out here on the podcast in the coming months that some of the things that we were able to cook up here at the ranch in the past few days will start to roll out over the rest of the year. Of course, tons of uncertainty about what's going to happen and everything, but uh, you know, in some ways, these kinds of situations like they're they're inspiring because it would be easy, I think, for everybody, all of us, to sit around and and feel sorry for ourselves and the and how scary things are and whatever. Oh, and you know, I don't get to go on an airplane to go to that thing I planned or whatever, but. For me, it's actually been the opposite. It's been a chance to get things down to a simplicity and ask yourself, "What do you really care about? You know we were talking about the other night um you mentioned like a lot of the things that we had to stop doing. you realize, well, maybe I don't need to do those things anymore
2: That's right, yeah, and I think. We all love to act like we have total control of our our, our lives and our income and, and everything. You know, that's part of the reason why we become entrepreneurs, I think, is because we like to control things <laughs> in one way or another. But it's interesting when something like this comes into life and you think, well, this was totally out of my control and now I have to react to it. And now I have to do things differently. And I think part of the reason some of us are so excited is because you you, and maybe I'll just speak for myself, you're so used to trying to control everything. Finally <laughs> something comes along that you can't control and you think, Woo, what a relief. Now I can just react. I don't have to control.
1: <laughs> There's certainly part conversations that came up, like, what did we used to do all the time? I, I can't even remember half the stuff I used to do, but uh it's been amazing to, uh, to hang out, to have that mastermind, and to speak with so many listeners of this show. So next week, we're going to be back sharing some coronavirus stories of how listeners of the TMBA pod responded to the challenges. If you've got a story to share with us, do drop by the website, drop us a comment or an email. We're always uh, sort of snooping around, digging around, seeing what you all are up to, and trying to create thoughtful and hopefully inspiring episodes for you all. So that's it. We'll be back, as always, next Thursday morning.